Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale. I am your host, Michael Davis. There is no way to get around it. The Bible is filled with stories that to our modern sensibilities are impossible to believe. Many would attempt to point to supernatural events in Scripture as proof that the Bible itself is false. Even some who call themselves Christians would abandon key tenets of the faith in order to make their version of Christianity more palatable for skeptics. How are evangelistically-minded Christians who wish to defend the faith and win souls for Christ supposed to respond? But before we get started, Vince, could you tell us a little bit about the Academy and why our listeners should take the core module? This is one of the most exciting things about RZIM, I think. It's only been going for a few years now, but we've had 6,000 students go through the core module, which is the initial program, a 12-week program that you go through, hits many of the major questions of apologetics, uh, and it's taught by many members of our team, uh, by Ravi, by John Lennox, uh, by many of the senior members of the team on their areas of expertise. It's highly interactive. Uh, It's encouraging you to go out and have conversations with people and come back and reflect on them. Uh, People from over 110 countries have gone through that core module, and then once you do so, you can then take all sorts of electives, and that number is growing each year. So you can take electives on Islam, on suffering, on the Bible, uh, on faith in the contemporary world, uh, and several others as well. So if you are excited about going deeper in your faith— but you can't necessarily just pick up and go study somewhere else for a year in person. This is uh, a great, great option. What we've tried to do is take as much of the relational, personal, interactive values that we put such a high priority on here at RZIM and take the course online without losing those values. And the feedback that we're getting uh, has been fantastic. So that's the RZIM Academy. It's our online courses in apologetics. Uh, I hope many of you will sign up. Absolutely. Well, let us get into the talk of the miraculous. Let's go into question number one from John M. How do you explain the supernatural elements like talking snakes and donkeys, water into wine, Noah, to non-Christians? Well, your donkeys don't talk to you uh, regularly? I feel like Michael can definitely relate to the talking donkey (laughs) comment. (laughs) Yes, uh, Askaway has its own talking donkey, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I'll own it. it. It's a great question. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you be willing to just bring these things to the surface um, and talk about them. And my first instinct when I read the question was, how cool that we have that stuff in the Bible? (laughs) Because there's so many people out there who think that the Bible is a boring book. I think, man, you want to get your kids excited about reading, you know, go to the Bible. Yeah, we've got talking snakes and donkeys. We've got water turned (laughs) into wine. We've got Noah's Ark. This is exciting stuff. So uh, I'm glad that you brought this stuff to the surface, but that doesn't mean that there's not challenges uh, about them because you're right. That's not something that we see every day. I do think, though, that miracles often get 
the short end of the stick. I think they often don't get a fair shake when we think through these things. If God is powerful enough to create an entire universe, then of course he's powerful enough to make an animal talk or to turn water into wine. It's important to remember that if we're going to ask the question, do miracles happen? If we're going to ask that question sincerely, then we need to come to the table open-handed about whether or not God exists. If we come to the table already assuming that God doesn't exist, well, then of course we're going to come to the conclusion that a miracle didn't happen. But if we're at least open to the possibility that there could be a God who's powerful enough that he could create an entire universe, but shouldn't give us additional problems to think he would be powerful enough to make an animal talk or to make water turn into wine. So I think that oftentimes miracles don't get a fair shake when we talk this through. Let, let me try and clarify it in one other way. Think about miracles. Either they happen regularly or they happen rarely. Now, if miracles happen regularly, well, then we don't call them miracles. We don't believe that they are miracles because they're things that happen all the time. And so instead, we take them to be scientifically explainable. We may have that explanation or we might not yet have that explanation. But if things happen regularly, we take them to be scientifically explainable and we seek that explanation. We take them then to be part of the regular course of nature. That doesn't mean that they're not extraordinary. Think about giving birth. Think about two parents giving birth to a child. I mean, you might say that's miraculous, and oftentimes we do say things like that, but we don't take them to be miracles in the way that we have to attribute to God. We take it to be a regular course of nature. Now, on the other hand, if miracles happen rarely, then we don't believe in them because we don't see enough of them. So either miracles happen regularly— and then we say, oh, well, that's just science. That's just part of the regular course of nature. Let's seek a scientific explanation. Or they happen rarely, and then we say, oh, well, they must not happen at all because they don't happen regularly enough to convince us that they happen. Either way, we wind up not believing in miracles. So again, that's just another perspective on it. But I think oftentimes we come to the table already bringing assumptions and predispositions that are, of course, going to lead us to the conclusion that miracles don't happen but we haven't actually given it a fair shot in the first place. Vince, I think you're, you're right. I think that what we have to do in regards to Scripture, and especially in stories of miracles, because, I mean, the whole, the whole redemptive history is miraculous, um, is really coming at Scripture with a level of humility. Uh, faith alone uh, requires a level of humility. Uh, understanding God's power uh, in his creation and his power over us requires humility. Um, God came into this world uh, to be able to to redeem it and to be able to redeem our relationship with Him. Again, that's that's miraculous. Requires humility to be able to understand it and to accept it. The problem with with a lot of our modern sensibilities is the fact that we have to say if it, we do not understand it, it is not it does not exist. Which is Interesting, because I think, Vince, you hit this uh, on the head. The things that happen today in light of, let's say, even just 50 years ago would look miraculous. I think it also raises questions about the character of God, doesn't it? Because if, if you're saying miracles could never happen, either you're, either you're assuming from the start there is absolutely no God and you're not even open to the possibility of there being a God, or you're saying 
okay, maybe there's a God, but he could only be the kind of God who doesn't get involved. Um, he's a kind of deistic God. He set everything running in the first place, but he's he has nothing to do with it ever since. And um, I kind of feel like, what, what sort of God is that? You know, why would you want a God who just kicked things off and then doesn't particularly care what happens? I think if... If, if God is really relational, if he's real and he's relational, then isn't he going to be the kind of God who actually gets involved um, in the world that we're in? And, you know, so I'm thinking, wow, if, if the Bible is actually the book of God, if it's actually his words to us, if there is a real living God and the Bible is from him, then shouldn't we expect to find supernatural elements within it? If this is a story of his interaction with humanity over centuries and centuries, and in that time, nothing extraordinary happens. I'm thinking, what kind of story is this? What kind of God is this if he's not getting involved in supernatural ways? But I also think it's important that when we look at the Bible, it's not just a batch of stories. It's not just esoteric. It's not just fables or, you know, it's yes, there you have your talking donkeys and snakes and water into wine. But those are actually stand out because they're exceptional. I think what's amazing about the Bible is it's not a bunch of crazy tales. Like when you get into it, you see all different kinds of genre. You know, you're seeing poetry and and wisdom literature and prophecy, but also you're seeing a lot of history and a lot of eyewitness material. And when you're reading that material, um, you're suddenly realizing, wow, these these aren't people just sitting around making crazy stories up. Um, they're actually describing what they've seen. They're doing it with incredible uh, reliability and accuracy. You know, if you dig around in archaeology, sorry, terrible, didn't mean that pun, but awful. Um, <laughs> then then actually, I know you're really bad, but uh, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, time and again, um, you see things being confirmed that, you know, for, for years, historians would say, oh, well, we know that the Assyrians didn't really exist, that they weren't a real people group. And oh, wow, suddenly they discover, you know, that that the, the huge amounts of evidence that they existed. Or, you know, they say, oh, well, Daniel got the name of that king wrong. And then suddenly they discover, oh, no, he actually did exist. Or they say Luke got the dates wrong. And suddenly they discover, oh, no, that really was the person um, at that time who was reigning. So time and again, this happens. So I think the overall reliability of the Bible makes you ask the question, okay, given how reliable this is overall, given the honesty and the soberness with soberness with which this is written down, shouldn't I then, rather than just assuming the worst when I come across a supernatural story, shouldn't it make me pause and think, okay, clearly these people aren't just writing a bunch of supernatural tales, but in the middle of this very sober account, you suddenly have the, this story being described and they themselves know this isn't just something that happens every day, that this is unexpected. This is, this is not the normal laws of nature. Shouldn't I then give it a second just a moment's pause to consider, could there be something else going on here? Yeah, I think that's right. And if you find yourself thinking, well, that's the sort of thing that could never possibly happen, well, you're probably inclined to say that because in the back of your mind, you're thinking God doesn't exist. Yeah. God doesn't exist. Therefore, this is the sort of thing that could never possibly happen. But then you've already made a decision on the very question that we're supposed to be bringing to the table with open hands as we discuss between believer an unbeliever. I wanted to pick up also on Michael's point about having humility as we approach this question. And, and this is an illustration that I find helpful. Say we were playing uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And there's a question that comes in and a lot of money's at stake and you don't know the answer um, to the question. What should you do? You have a few options. You, know, you might phone a friend. Um, but you might poll the audience. And polling the audience is not a perfect gauge for the answer, but it's a pretty good one. And you should take it seriously. If you yourself are not sure about the answer, you should take seriously what the percentage, what the opinion is of the audience that you poll. 
Well, if you poll the audience, both historically and even today in most of the world, the vast, vast majority of the global and historical audience is going to tell us that miracles do happen, that they believe miracles happen. And in fact, I suspect that most people will say that they have even been present for at least one miracle. And isn't it quite ethnocentric for us then to think, oh, but we know better. Our little sphere of the globe and our little slice of time, we know better. And everyone else, me, this one individual sitting here on the game show, knows better than the entire audience. That's not, I don't think, a place of humility when it comes to this question. I think we need to take seriously what other people have thought. Now, you might come back and say, well, people in the past were really superstitious. But then you have to ask the question, well, why do you think people in the past were superstitious? And someone's probably going to say something like, well, because they believed in miracles. <laughs> but wait, that's a circular argument. If the reason they're superstitious is because they believed in miracles, and that's the whole question we're supposed to be deciding, then you just beg the question there. You just have a circular argument. So I think we need to take people's opinions seriously. I think we need to take people's experience seriously. I think we not to, need to not be too overconfident in our one little slice of the world, in our one little slice of time. Even today, throughout most of the world, People do believe in miracles, and I suspect even in our own country that's the case. And a question I love to ask people is, have you ever had an experience that has made you think there might be a God? And if you give people enough time to consider that question and actually maybe themselves wade through some of their naturalistic assumptions and actually remember an experience that they've had, I find that most people I ask that question to tell me something incredibly remarkable that I would call miraculous and that I think God's fingerprints are all over. I also think, I mean, there's an interesting question. How do you explain the supernatural elements to non-Christians? Because, you know, as much as we're in the kind of scientific, rational world right now where, you know, we feel like um, you have to justify everything by reason and with no reference to the supernatural, it's, it's fascinating to me that when you look at our, our popular culture and what's on TV and the books people are reading, actually you see a real hunger and um, kind of interest and curiosity, fascination about the supernatural. So much of the stuff people are watching, it's almost as if, you know, as much as we, we try and suppress those things and smother it down, there's something within us that almost has a, an awareness of it and it's coming out somewhere. And of course, it's coming out in our creativity and in our imaginations and in our literature um, or in our TV. But but I think that speaks to the fact that actually it might not be as, as off-putting. To, you know, some people, yes, are going to really struggle with it. But for other people... Um, you may find that actually um, when you start talking about the supernatural elements of the Bible, it connects with them and it relates to them because they have that sense of something more. And actually, rather than it putting them off the Bible, they might even find it more believable because it, it gives them an explanation for what was that feeling within them that made them feel like there must be more than this, than just the things I can physically see and touch with my own eyes. So don't assume that just because some people are going to find this really difficult, that it won't be the very thing that actually helps other people to believe the Bible and to take it seriously. We don't always need to feel like we're on the back foot with some of this material. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And then if some people have doubts because they say, oh, but that happens so rarely, uh, and so maybe that's you know not something I should believe, maybe even my experience of that, maybe I was making things up. You know, I think we, again, have a good response there. We say, well, look, if God's going to communicate something to us, uh, if he's going to communicate a spiritual truth to us in a miraculous way, it has to be a rare event. The reason 
that God can speak to us so powerfully about his plan for humanity through a virgin birth is because virgins don't usually give birth. The reason he can speak to us so powerfully through raising Jesus from the dead is because people don't usually rise from the dead. So the fact that miracles are rare occurrences is exactly what we should expect if they're the sorts of things that God is going to use from time to time in order to communicate truths about who he is and what he's doing in the world. I would uh, really uh, recommend people um, who are who live in the modern West to reach out to missionaries who work with unreached people or places that are really remote because some of the stories that you will get from them, especially in places where where Christianity is really uh, is is not uh, does not permeate the culture, is you will see God working in miraculous ways. You you're hearing stories coming out of the Middle East. Of, of, of Muslims by the hundreds all having dreams of Christ and coming to faith. You, you, you hear stories of God working in miraculous ways, but I, I think that, Vince, you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's, a, there's oftentimes maybe because we have a presupposition that miracles can't happen, we're not even receptive to the, the, the possibility that what we're witnessing is miraculous. Um, it when you're when you're dealing with a culture that has a presupposition that God, or if you if you're a person who has a presupposition that God can do anything He wants, you are possibly more receptive to being able to say, "Okay, that is an amazing thing that I just saw." Yeah, I think that's really good, and I think the example of dreams that you bring up is a perfect example. I have, over time, come to realize that dreams are one way that God can speak to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't usually remember my dreams. Jo- Joe does. Joe has incredible dreams about being a ninja <laughs> and sci-fi, <laughs> and she's flying all over the place. I wish I could be in Joe's head while I'm sleeping. I don't. I don't. It's scary sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right, not if you're afraid of heights. I don't usually remember my dreams, but once in a while I wake up with a very vivid memory of a dream um, and a sense of there being something significant about it. And I have learned over the years if that dream is about someone – to just get in touch with them and just say, hey, I just woke up this morning and I dreamt this last night and I don't know if that means anything to you, but uh, in the past I've had a couple instances where it has meant something to someone, so i just leave that with you. You know, no kind of uh, uh, overconfidence that, yes, this is definitely God speaking in this way, but just allowing the possibility that God could speak in a miraculous way. And I find that more times than not, God is speaking through that dream to the person that that dream was about, and at times in ways that include details that I could not possibly have known in any way, even in my subconscious. So the dreams is a really interesting example because I found in my own life, God is sometimes using dreams to communicate in my own life, but I never would have known that, certainly never would have called it miraculous if someone at some point didn't encourage me to say, hey, that sounds like a really vivid, significant dream. Maybe it actually God is asking you to give an encouragement to someone about something in their life. If it was about that person, why don't you pass that on? But it would have been very easy to go my whole life and be having those dreams, which might have a miraculous element to them, but just assume because of my naturalistic worldview and the culture that I'm living in that, of course, God couldn't speak through a dream. I can still remember when we were living in Oxford and you had that sudden overwhelming feeling that you just needed to call a mutual friend of ours like right in that moment I remember Vince got on the phone with her and she was literally standing in her kitchen with a knife in her hand about to commit suicide 
and it would just been the case that you just so but you you could have ignored <laughs> ignored that said well these things don't happen but because you phoned her you know we were able to talk to her and pray with her and um you know yeah, she and, went on and to live and it's not someone who was suicidal not someone who we had yeah. any evidence was even considering that and I just somehow just knew I had to call her right then and literally knife to her wrist and the phone rang and that's what you know stopped her from doing that so Again, it would be so easy, though, in our naturalistic world to say, well, God couldn't possibly be speaking in that sort of way and then never even test that and never even see if there are miracles that are going on. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, let's go into question number two from Aaron V. I have a family member who says he can't believe the Bible is true because of the story of Jonah. How can someone get swallowed by a fish and survive without oxygen? How do I answer him? Aaron, thank you for your question. It's it's such a good one. I'm sure it's one that at every point um, we have all asked. The story of Jonah definitely stands out as one of the harder to believe uh, examples in the Bible. But I think it's coming back to this idea again that actually um, the when this, when this took place, there, there was no assumption that actually this was a regular occurrence that could just happen. The whole point is that something miraculous here is going on. In fact, you know, the text specifically talks about the fact that God prepared a fish. You know, it wasn't just assuming that, hey, a, you know, some kind of whale or something just randomly swims along and this takes place. But this is something God is intentionally intervening to do. It's something miraculous that takes place. What's also interesting to me about this text is actually um, it might be uh, that Jonah actually doesn't survive. It might actually be that Jonah dies and God resurrects him. That's actually quite a strong possibility in, in the text as well. In Jonah 2, 2, it says, In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and he listened to my cry. So, you know, so, some people say, no, Jonah was alive in, in the fish for three days and that's the miracle. Others will say, no, maybe he actually died. And the point is when when he's kind of like vomited up on land that actually God resurrects him. And the, the point is we don't know what's going on here. But either way, God is doing something incredible and something miraculous. Um, so again, I think it's just coming back to that question of could could if God exists, could God actually do it? And if God couldn't do it, what kind of God is he if he doesn't have the power to do something like that? Um, you know, I, I sometimes struggle with the story of Jonah as well. But for me, this bit isn't the bit that's hard to believe. For me, the bit that's hard to believe is is actually what takes place at the end of the book exactly. of Jonah. Exactly. I mean, I have a real struggle with that, that, uh, you know, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And just to put it in context, Nineveh is a city just, it's kind of like the ISIS of the ancient world. I mean, the things that they would they would do um, to to each other, that the way that they treated those that they conquered, they, uh, the torture, the amputating of hands and feet, gouging of eyes, they skinned and impaled their captors. I mean, they were known throughout the ancient world as being absolutely ruthless. And one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Nahum, describes in this way, says, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. That's, that's what Nineveh are known for. And yet when God sends Jonah in, calling them to repent, um, and then they do repent, God actually forgives them. And, and that's what Jonah is mad about. Jonah isn't even mad about being swallowed by the fish. I mean, I think he sort of thinks, well, I had that coming. What he's mad about is the fact that what these people had coming was serious judgment for the way that they've been living, for the destruction they had been wielding. And yet what does God do when they repent? He spares them. I mean, it's actually staggering. And Jonah is so mad at God, not that he got swallowed by a fish, but that God would, would actually behave with such mercy towards these people that everyone hated and who deserved judgment. And um, and there's this amazing line where God says, um, 
you know, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? You see the heart of God in that. And Jonah's so furious, not because God is judgmental, but because he's so merciful. And so... I think sometimes we, we actually get hung up on the wrong details. Yeah, the, the, the fish bit is, is pretty miraculous. And, you know, it does take us accepting that there is a God who exists and is capable of doing those kind of things. But what I really marvel at is that God could have such profound mercy, even when as human beings, we don't think that he should. Yeah, that's a miracle, too. That's great. Uh, the other thing I find really helpful in these sorts of conversations, when you're talking with someone who's struggling with miracles and they're not someone who believes in God, I call it the normality of the supernatural I think sometimes we're under the assumption that if I just accept naturalism or scientism, if I just accept this non-theistic way of seeing the world, well, then that gets me out of the challenge of miracles. And I really don't think that's the case. I mean, you know, right now I'm sitting on a rock. It's rotating at 1,000 miles an hour. It's flying around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. It's being hurled through the universe at over a million miles an hour, a universe that's almost 100 billion light years in size, that's absolutely miraculous. And if I ask a naturalist or someone who, who believes in scientism that science can explain everything, what's the explanation for that? Yeah. What, what is the explanation ultimately? Yes, we have some scientific laws and principles that can explain some of the progression, but where did it all come from in the first place? There's no answer to that question. That's absolutely miraculous. What's the bigger miracle for us all to be sitting here listening to this and thinking about it without any explanation whatsoever? Or for there to be a God who's capable of doing some really powerful thing, including bringing this universe into existence and designing it the way that it is? It's not clear which is the bigger miracle. So in these conversations, just make sure everyone's aware that we have a similar starting point. It's not like some of us have to deal with the miraculous and some of us don't have to deal with the miraculous. We live in a miraculous world, and sometimes pointing that out can just help for the conversation to be more open-minded in the first place. I, I think I kind of put myself in, in Jonah's uh, shoes sometimes when I, uh, when, when I think about what it would have required for me to go to, let's say, for example, ISIS territory to preach the gospel. Let's say, let's say God comes to me and he says, you need to go to the heart of Syria, and, and if you go there, that a bunch of people would repent and come to faith. Um, I know that I would have probably gotten on a boat I mean, or a plane, I guess. Uh, but ultimately, I think that what would it have required for me to be able to do that? Um, I think that, that God knows his, he knows his people. He knows his prophets. And I think that for Jonah, what he needed was that— this a mirac- and Vince, you hit this earlier. He needed to act in a way that really kind of grabbed Jonah by the ears and said, "This is exactly what I want you to do." Um, and that's why that's the way God uses miracles throughout Scripture. It is not a, like like a God is a, a magician trying to he's like pulling a rabbit out of his hat. Is literally saying, "This is what is required for this to actually happen." Um, God does nothing without you know, an understanding of not just what's going to happen within the context of that specific moment, but then how is that going to affect people reading about that story? God is so much more grand and so much more magnificent than than we give him credit for. But everything he's done, the fact that those very stories are written in Scripture has effects that have have touched millions of people's lives. And Aaron, one thing I was just thinking is that— 
if your family member is saying he can't believe the Bible is true because of the story of Jonah, in so many ways, the story of Jonah prefigures what happens to Christ. You yeah. know, someone who is, um, you know, Christ even refers back to him you know, uh, in terms of three days of, of being in, you know, in the tomb and then and then coming back out. So one way to answer his questions might be to say, okay, well. And um, what about the story of the resurrection? Because that's also a really hard story to believe in terms of the miraculous taking place. But I also think the evidence for the resurrection in the New Testament is absolutely staggering. And so maybe one thing to say would be, could we walk through the evidence for the resurrection together? Because if he can come to a point of seeing that that actually took place... Um, then he might find himself in a position to also believe the story of Jonah. So maybe it's trying to start in a different place, start with where we have the most evidence, you know, because none of us came to believe that the Bible was true because we went through all these stories and thought, oh yeah, I can definitely sign on for the story of a talking donkey. That wasn't how we came to faith. It was because we came to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he really rose from the dead, that that miracle happened. And therefore we go from there to believe the rest of scripture. So rather than getting stuck in all those tricky passages around Jonah, why don't you go for the hardest miracle of all, the most important, important miracle of all the resurrection, but also the one for which we actually see the evidence of God putting a footprint in in space and time in history, something we can actually investigate and test for ourselves, because I think that is what it hangs on. And that is going to make all the difference here. I think someone needs to ask a question about the proof of the resurrection, because we still haven't gotten that one. Okay, guys, we are out of time. Vince, sum it up for us. Well, I hope so. That We'd be excited to speak to that question about the resurrection. Uh, Acts says God has provided confirmation for all by raising Jesus from the dead, which is just what Joe was saying. Let's start with that confirmation and go from there. And, and when we're talking, you know, with people who are skeptical about miracles, just, you know, a good question or two to ask. If God showed you a miracle, would you follow him? That often gives people pause. And if the answer is no, then why would he show a miracle? And if the answer is no, then would you be inclined to recognize a miracle for what it is, even if you did experience a miracle. So ask those questions. Try to help people see that this is about relationship. It's not about God trying to force us to believe in him out of fear or coercion because he just did something so magnificent and extraordinary and miraculous that we couldn't possibly not believe in him. He doesn't just want intellectual assent. That's easy to get. He could just throw his name in the sky and we'd have to believe in him intellectually. What he wants is deep an intimate relationship. That takes trust, and trust has to be built over time, and it has to be built not only by miracles, but by relationally giving yourself for the other, and that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.